And people love to justify themselves by comparison. If you spend a lot of time sharing the gospel with people, you get a sense of how most think. And you find that almost everyone believes they're a good person. It's extremely rare to meet someone who's already convinced and convicted that they're guilty and unrighteous before God. Instead, most believe they're doing great. And they may not be sinless, they're not perfect, but nobody's perfect. And the fact that no one is perfect actually comforts them. Because if perfection was really the standard, then no one would go to heaven. God's not going to send everyone to hell, right? He's grading on a curve, so they may not be perfect. But compared to others, they're doing pretty well. People justify themselves by comparison. You may have someone who committed adultery, but he says, it's not like I'm a thief. And the thief says, it's not like I'm a murderer. And the murderer says, it's not like I'm a serial killer. And the serial killer says, it's not like I'm a pedophile. And the pedophile says, it's not like I'm Hitler. But there's always someone worse than you. And when you stand next to them, by comparison, you, you look pretty good. Like you're doing pretty good. And this is a favorite tactic of the self-righteous. But the trade all ends when you realize that on judgment day, you're going to be standing next to Christ. And God's standard actually is perfect righteousness. By that standard, no one is good. There's not a single good person. None are righteous. All are sinners. All will be condemned. And all most certainly deserve to be cast out of God's presence. This is a rude awakening, but it's true. You must open your eyes to the true righteousness of God and what that means for us who come nowhere close. If that's true, you might wonder, though, well, who can be saved? The answer is only those who who humble themselves and approach this Christ in a repentant faith because only he can make them clean, make them righteous. This rude awakening might be painful, but it's a good thing. And I just hope your eyes can be opened here and now where you can cling to this Christ by faith before it's too late, lest your eyes be, be ripped open on the day of judgment when your fate is sealed. And speaking of opening eyes, Christ's Sermon on the Mount is designed to do just that. And Christ gave this seminal message to expose the true righteousness of God, which in turn shows us how far we fall short. But hopefully this prize open our eyes to the truth as it, it just removes that excuse the excuse of those who would try and justify themselves by comparison. Yeah, it's true. You might not be a murderer or an adulterer, but you know, what if God's standard of acceptance or righteousness went all the way down to your heart and included things like anger and lust? If that's the standard, are you still not guilty? Who's without these sins? I mean, if that's the case, we're, we're all in trouble. We're all in need of a savior. Hey, it's good news that a Savior has come. I just hope you've been convicted to accept him, not reject him. We need to hear this message. It comes from the Lord himself that our eyes might be opened here and now, before it is too late. We want our eyes open, and let's do that as we continue to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I've been going through Matthew's whole gospel verse by verse, but here we're at the beginning really of the Sermon on the Mount, his greatest message ever, and there's, there's so much to learn here. And starting in verse 21, which is where we were last time, Christ is going to start giving us six examples, six case studies of how the scribes distorted God's law. 
the scribes and Pharisees, they, they were like the professional lawyer class among the Jews. And they're the ones most responsible for leading God's people away from him into this system of dead works, righteousness, self-righteousness. And they twisted God's word to mean something other than God intended. And now by way of contrast, Christ is going to untwist it, straighten it out, show you how it really is. He's going to show what the true righteousness of God looks like. And like he just said in the verse prior, verse 20, he told the people, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, all these religious leaders, all they had was a phony self-righteousness achieved by keeping the letter of man-made laws, but they, they lacked the true righteousness of God which comes by faith alone because no one can actually keep all of God's law. And so in reality, these, these supposed religious elites, they, they weren't even entering the kingdom. But Christ says you can, he says, if your righteousness far surpasses theirs. Now that that's not meant to be some sort of challenge that you can justify yourself. You just have to beat them at their own game, keep more laws than they keep and you might get in. No, saving righteousness only comes by faith in the Savior, Christ. But this is a call to put on display that the true righteousness you've received from him by faith that you might prove and display. You are his disciple. You will enter this kingdom. It does belong to you. And now Jesus is going to expound on what that true righteousness really looks like. We've already found that it goes way beyond the letter of the law and includes the spirit of the law. We saw this last time we covered verses 21 through 26, where Jesus revealed the heart of the sin of murder. Murdering others. It's not the only way to violate the sixth commandment. And Christ taught us that anger and slander and malice, they all amount to murder in the heart and they make you just as guilty before a perfectly holy God. And so true righteousness then involves not simply abstaining from the act of murder, but also putting off anger and slander in your heart, putting on peace. That's what God wants from us. Now we're going to get into the second contrast found in verses 27 through 30. And Christ uses the the same logic to make a similar point just from the next commandment, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Jesus gives us another needed correction on the spirit of God's law and its true intent. To walk righteously in the way of Christ is by grace, through faith, this is what it looks like. He's going to continue to tell us. And so we're going to carry on now and just walk through these verses. We're going to see the second contrast, hopefully with eyes wide open. As we ask ourselves, is our righteousness truly surpassing? That's enough of an introduction. Let's just get into it. Starting in verse 27. Let's go through these verses now. Matthew 5, look at verse 27. Second example, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Jesus begins all six of these contrasts with some variation of the same phrase, You've heard that it was said. And with this, he's summarizing what the rabbis wrongly said about God's law. This is what the people had been hearing their whole lives because they fully relied on these teachers of the law to tell them what God said and what it means. And sometimes the problem with these scribes has to do with what they added 
to God's law. We'll see that later. But other times, like in verse 21, and like here in verse 27, the problem is not with what they added to the law, but what they left out. They had vastly narrowed and shrunk the borders of the seventh commandment so that they could skirt by it and not cross the line, not be guilty of committing adultery. Now, speaking of, Jesus is quoting the seventh commandment here from Exodus 20, verse 14. It says very plainly, you shall not commit adultery. This was a key command for all of God's people. And God established his blueprint for marriage from the very beginning. It's the most important human relationship. It's, it's the building block of any society. God said way back in Genesis 2, 24, He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this union between one man and one woman is all about loyalty. It's an an exclusive, lifelong commitment to dwell together with one person. Marriage is an intertwining of souls. It's a spiritual one flesh union. You could say then that, that the sign and seal of that union is physical intimacy. Hence, one of the problems with adultery, as with all other sexual sins outside the covenant of marriage, is that you have the mixing of bodies without the mixing of souls. As commentator Doriani put it, you have, quote, life uniting acts without life uniting intent, end quote. And then people hope that's not going to have any consequences. But it doesn't work that way. When you take the marriage bed without the marriage part, there there are going to be consequences. Because God did not make us as purely biological creatures. And sexual intimacy cannot be reduced to simply a biological act. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. God made us for him. He made us as physical beings and spiritual beings as one. And marriage is where two of those beings come together as one, united physically and spiritually. But when you separate that, you're you're dishonoring God and inviting ruin. A man in his sinful rebellion has, has thrown God's blueprint on marriage and sexuality to the wind a long time ago, thinking he knows better, just driven by his passions from the beginning. It's, it's been this way after the fall. But he fails to realize that the God's standard was actually meant for our good, for human flourishing, for our joy. I mean, sexual sin comes at your own peril. Sexual intimacy was created by God before the fall. I mean, it was God's good gift to mankind. He made men and women to desire one another, to dwell together, to commit to one another for life. And intimacy within those bounds is a great blessing. But intimacy outside those bounds is a curse. How much human suffering and conflict stem from sexual sins, primarily adultery? How many lives are wrecked because of it? How many people are are lastingly hurt and scarred? And look, speaking of murder in the previous verse, I mean, how many murders have behind them adultery? I mean, if you watch Dateline, you start to think that behind every murder is a love triangle. Many wars have even been fought over adultery. 
But even on a, a more personal level, how much hurt and strife have been caused by such unfaithfulness, by the breaking of vows, by the violation of loyalty. And those root wounds can run deep and take years to heal. A man thinks that the greatest good is just fulfilling his desires, whatever they might be, just, just exalting self, getting whatever you want. That's, that's what life is about. But why is it that the lives of the sexually broken and betrayed are so often filled with regret, lasting regret? All this goes to say, it's no wonder God commanded his people for their own good. Do not commit adultery. That, that's a good thing. That's a righteous law. This is a seriously destructive sin. But now there are two problems with how the scribes and Pharisees interpreted and applied this command. The first problem was that they created loopholes so that they could get away with adultery. One loophole was basically to make divorce possible for just about any reason. So if you really wanted to be with another woman, just get a quick divorce and there you go. You can go, go get her. And Jesus will deal with their twisted take on divorce in the very next passage. We'll save that for next time. But another loophole involved playing gymnastics with the wording of God's law and commands. They just, they very narrowly define the sin of adultery. You know, later the, the 10th commandment says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. So they thought, you know, adultery, it's all about taking your neighbor's wife. But who is a neighbor? They define neighbor to be a, a fellow Jew. And therefore, adultery meant taking the wife of a fellow Jew. But what about taking the wife of a Gentile? That's not adultery. They're not a neighbor. And so there were times in Israel's history when literal adultery was acceptable so long as you weren't taking the wife of a fellow Jew. And we talk about the quintessential legal loophole that enables you to do the exact opposite of the commandment. And so one huge way the scribes got wrong the seventh commandment was by creating all these loopholes. There's a second way in which they, they really got wrong God's original law. And that's by ignoring the spirit of the law. And that's what Jesus is going to pick on here. They taught that, look, as long as you stop short of the physical deed of adultery, you're okay. Right? You're keeping the seventh commandment. Just, just don't do the deed. That's all that God cares about, right? And it's true, God cares about the deed, but it should have been equally true to them that he cares about the heart behind the deed as well. He wants to see righteousness in their inward desires as much as their outward deeds. I mean, look, speaking of the 10th commandment, just a few commandments later, it, it says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Doesn't that already make clear that sin is not just about what you do. It can involve what you desire. And the Old Testament writings make this equally clear. There's a heart level sin behind adultery and, and God forbids that as well. But they, they paid no attention to that. Just, just pass the strict letter of the law and you're righteous. But Jesus will correct these legalists. You know, as is a feature of all legalists, they notoriously lacked mercy. Right? That they're complete hypocrites. Their lives were full of sin, but they kept this strict, limited veneer of the law. But, you know, they showed themselves as phonies, by their lack of compassion to other fellow sinners. You see this, a prime example of this in John chapter 8, with a woman caught in adultery. 
These same people were beginning to pick up large stones to throw at her head until she died. But first they bring her to Jesus and say, what, what do you think we should do with her? And this is where Christ famously says back to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first one to throw a stone at her. And they'll leave. Jesus said this not to excuse her sin. Her sin was real. It was grave. And under the Old Testament law, it made her worthy of death. But her only hope was a merciful savior who might pardon her by his death. And that's what Jesus did. But Jesus said what he said, not to excuse her sin, but to expose the scribes and Pharisees. Because they were no better than her. In our eyes, we see that religious leader, we see the adulteress, the prostitute. One is better than the other, obviously. But in God's eyes, no, that they're both guilty. They're both unrighteous before him. Just because these guys didn't do the deed of adultery, that that didn't mean they were righteous. That didn't make them not guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. And Christ makes this point explicit with his contrast In verse 28, verse 28, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Emphatically, Jesus says, but I say to you, he's telling you how how it really is. Despite what the people have been hearing their whole lives from these teachers, he's going to tell you the the true intent and heart of the seventh commandment and God's will. Just like with the previous commandment, God's standard, it's it's not just having to do with with your your eyes and your hands. It also has a lot to do with, with what you do with your heart. And therefore, Jesus declares that just as anger is akin to the sin of murder in your heart, that lust is akin to the sin of adultery in your heart. It's pretty plain. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's clarify what what this lust is. The verb for looks, the present active participle meaning this is an ongoing, continuous action. This is not talking about just initially noticing someone attractive. This is a lingering look, a sensual stare, a lustful gawking. Some person has become the object of your desire, sexually speaking. You know, just when an attractive person comes into your field of vision, that's not a sin. That to you might become a temptation, Temptation itself is not sin. It's, it's temptation. It is the opportunity to sin and the enticement to sin. It's like that presentation of the forbidden fruit. That which God has said, do not eat. But being fallen creatures given over to sin, we, we find that there's this desire within us. Even though God has said, don't eat. And sometimes because he has said, don't eat, we, we want to eat all the more. There's a principle of sin in our flesh that wants to go outside of God's bounds all the time. And here the word for that is lust. Word for that desire is lust. It's epithumeo right here. This lust is not always sexual and it's not always sinful. 
The word just talks about a strong desire. You really want something. And that's not inherently evil. The problem, though, is when you really want something that's outside of God's bounds, his good bounds, well, then what? Well, if you give in to that temptation telling you, come on outside the fence, you have the very definition of sin. You know, this lust for that which doesn't belong to you, it can be applied to objects. And that is what the sin of covetousness is. Since we spoke of the 10th commandment, it's, it's the same thing. That commandment first says, do not covet your neighbor's house. There's nothing wrong with desiring a house. If you want a place to live, even a nice place to live, that's not by itself an evil desire. Problem is, you don't just want a house, you want your neighbor's house. If only there was some way you could take it from him. But this is wrong because that the house doesn't belong to you. God has not give explicitly, God has not given it to you. And although Jesus does not explicitly connect the dots here, you could easily say that that covetousness is akin to theft in the heart. Right? The eighth commandment, do not steal. What is covetousness but stealing in the heart? You're not content with what God has given you. You're not trusting God to give you the good desires of your heart. You resolve just to take what you want, even though God has said not to. And the sin of lust, Jesus is talking about here in verse 28. It operates the same way, only here he is talking about a sexual desire. It's the same type of lust as covetousness for something, only here it's not material, it is sexual. It's applied not to an object, but a person. Well, this is why, by the way, the 10th commandment also said, do not covet your neighbor's wife. It can be applied to to people. What's so wrong with this? I mean, it's not wrong to strongly desire a spouse and thereafter strongly desire intimacy. That's not wrong. Those are God-given desires. But when you lust after another person, when you strongly desire them sexually, just like covetousness, that person doesn't belong to you. They're not your spouse. God has not given them to you. And you must not take them for yourself, even in your imagination. To act on sinful impulses, to follow them outside of God's bounds. It expresses the same heart of rebellion Adam and Eve had in the garden. when they saw, took, and ate that forbidden fruit. It's the same rebellion. There's always someone who will say though, but look, what's the big deal about lust? I'm, I'm keeping my thoughts to myself. Why is lust so wrong? It doesn't hurt anyone. I'm not doing anything. That really is the fool's excuse. Because in reality, you are doing something and you are hurting someone. I mean, first, you're maligning God. You're spitting in the face of his will. You're scorning the good instructions of your heavenly father. You're demeaning the glory of God. To say back, like, I've not done anything wrong, is to be just like the Pharisees who limited the standard of God's righteousness just to external deeds. Like, I've not done the deed. But Christ's very point here is that that God's standard of righteousness includes your heart as well, the, the, the desires and attitudes of your heart. And so just because you don't do the deed doesn't make you not guilty in God's eyes. And look, yes, again, it's true. Murder is worse than anger. 
Physical adultery is worse than lust. Scripture does teach there are degrees of sin. But the point Christ makes here is that both sins make you guilty before God who is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. They both make you unrighteous and meriting his wrath. In Ephesians 5.1, God wants you to be imitators of him. You're to be like him. And because of that, Ephesians 5.3, there should be not even a hint of impurity or immorality among you. Ephesians 5.3, not even a hint of impurity or immorality should be among you. And God demands to see sexual purity in your hearts. And so when you give in to lust, you are doing something. You are rebelling against your creator. You are sinning. And also when you lust, you are hurting someone. Yourself. You're leading your soul into ruin. You can't play around and toy with these sins of the heart. Sin is like a snake coiling around you, telling you, I'm just here to keep you warm. You ignore it, and a little later it turns on you, strangles you, and it's, it's too late. Now, you must be killing your sin, or your sin will be killing you. It's just like God himself told Cain at the very beginning. Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And if you don't, if you let the door in and you just let sin waltz right in, it's not going to be long before Hebrews 3.13. You become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that means it won't be long before that, that lust in your heart leaves your heart. It makes its way to your eyes, to your hands, and, and you will be doing something about it. Look, how do you think physical adultery happens? You think someone just wakes up one day and even though they have a great marriage, they're advanced in sanctification, they're, they're strong in putting to death uh, lustful thoughts. But still, he says to himself, I think I'll cheat on my wife today. That never happens. There's a saying we use in the biblical counseling world that, that those who fall into adultery don't fall far. Meaning is it's, it's super, super godly people aren't committing adultery overnight. Now, rather, what happens is they make tiny little compromises over the course of a decade, many years. It might start with just a little discontentment in the marriage. A man finds his wife less desirable than before. Proverbs 5.18 says, be satisfied in the wife of your youth. But instead of doing this, he, he lets his thoughts drift. He used to be militant about putting to death lustful thoughts, but his resolve has weakened. They, they slip by. He dwells on them, made a little compromise. The door has been cracked open and a little later, a much bigger sin barges through the door than he bargained for. And that is usually pornography. He forms a secret habit. He feels remorse. He knows it's wrong, but I mean, look, these desires are strong. He feels helpless to do anything about it. And he says to himself, it's, it's not like I'm committing adultery though. It's not like he's hurting anyone. In shame, he keeps his problem to himself. That only makes things worse. He further pulls away from his wife. Lustful thoughts grow. They turn into fantasies, into imaginations. Then he meets someone, maybe someone at work, and forms an emotional relationship. She gives him the attention, the affection he desires. He tells himself, like, it's not like I'm committing adultery here. But at this point, his heart has, is already long gone into sin. At this point, 
He's been committing heart adultery for a long time and has already become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, at this point, it just takes the right set of circumstances, just one little push, and he will go all the way. You can see how such a person has been tolerating sin over the course of many years, with every little compromise inching closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. Eventually, he's, he's living on the edge of the cliff. And when he falls, it doesn't fall far, just one little push, one last temptation, and down he goes. It's not a hypothetical. This happens often enough. It's not one-sided. It's all, it's all applies to women just as much as men. Women may not be as sexually minded in their lust, but they can give into relational fantasies that are just as much adultery in the heart. Tolerating any such lust is poisonous. In Proverbs 6.23 says, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Then Proverbs 7, the whole chapter, but verse 22, speaking of a young man who's been enticed by a woman. It says, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, all these warnings in in Proverbs and in God's wisdom can be applied to, to lust as well. God's not cruel. God's not a killjoy. He's the God of all joy. He wants us to have joy. He's the one who invented and created sexual relations for for our joy. But he gave them their proper place. There's only one place. It's called the marriage bed. And taking them outside that place leads to a whole host of suffering. And that includes indulging in sexual relations in the heart via lust. So you need to take to heart what Jesus says says here, just because you're, you're not committing the deed of adultery, that doesn't make you not guilty. God's standard of righteousness extends to the heart. So when you're cut open and laid bare, who are you in your heart? All of us are unrighteous in our heart. Who's without this sin? But we are called to put off, fight against this adultery in the heart because one thing really does lead to another. What do we do about this? And Jesus is giving us here the spirit of God's law. And he's explaining to us the extent of God's standard. It, it's way beyond just deeds. It goes down to thoughts, desires. I mean, we're, we're all guilty. What, what do we do? How are we to live this out? Because like all of us, we have these desires. Sometimes they can be very strong. What do we do about this? Well, beyond giving us a contrast, Jesus also gives us some instruction In verses 29 and 30, let's look at that now. Carrying on, verse 29, he he adds a couple, some bonus notes for us. Verse 29, he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better For you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And adding some instruction here, Jesus gives us two parallel statements. They're almost identical. The main difference is just one features an eye, one features a hand. 
And so what's going on here? What's, what's the problem with this eye and this hand? Well, he says, they have stumbled you. The word in Greek is skandalizo. It refers to a trap, a stumbling block. The word was used of, of the bait you put inside a trap that would trigger the trap and catch the animal. And metaphorically, it came to refer to, to anything that ensnares us, anything that leads us into sin, anything that entices us to do wrong. This if statement is what's called a first class conditional, just meaning Jesus assumes this to be true for the sake of argument. Meaning your hand, your eye, they are malfunctioning. They are leading you into sin, not away from sin. And so if that happens, when that happens, what should you do? It sounds like you have a real problem on your hands, pun intended. (laughs) But Christ's counsel here is severe, radical amputation. He says, tear out your eye and cut off your hand. Last night, we were talking about his shock statements. He's not done. Talk about some more shocking statements. This was meant to grab attention. This was meant to wake up that guy in the back row who's fallen asleep. Like, what did you just say? Did you say cut off your hand? This, this sounds crazy. Like, why do this? I mean, what, what a loss to be without your eye and your hand for the rest of your life. And especially your right eye and your right hand especially in the ancient world, that the right hand was universally regarded as the best, strongest, most able hand. Sorry, left-handed people, you're out. (laughs) What would justify such a loss? And Christ says, consider the alternative. It's, It's better to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And Christ is saying that the consequence of the sin that your eye and hand lead you into is worse. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. That's what hell is. I told you last time, Jesus talks way more about hell than heaven. Here he is. He's already at it again, warning the people that that the sin, it's not to be tolerated, not to be toyed with. It is eternally deadly. You must cut off any source of sin before it, it deceives you and then stumbles you. And if you tolerate your sin for long, you risk being stumbled for good, just falling away from the faith and perishing. So this is Christ's counsel for the one facing the sin of adultery in the heart. You've just, just lust in the heart. What should you do about that? He prescribes radical amputation of the eye and the hand. Anything which proves to be an occasion of sin for you. Now you're probably wondering, as people have throughout all church history. How do we take his words here? Like, did he actually mean this? We're trained to take the Bible literally and seriously, and and you should. And some, therefore, have taken what Jesus says here at face value. Church father Origen famously did this. I'll just put it this way. When he was a youth because of his lustful passions, he decided to make himself a eunuch. Later in life, he regretted his decision, realizing he had misinterpreted Christ's words. A little too late at that point. That's why Bible study matters. <laughs> and later, the, the Council of Nicaea forbade such mutilation, and they were right to do so. We do take the Bible literally, but that does not preclude legitimate uses of figurative language, such as hyperbole, where one gives exaggerated statements to make a point. And that is what Jesus is doing here. It's ironic because 
Jesus is literally in the process of rebuking the Pharisees for heeding the letter of God's word, but totally ignoring the spirit of his word. But many make the same mistake. They approach Christ's words and they give heed to the letter and they, they totally ignore the spirit, the, per, the point of what he's saying. Jesus is a great teacher. He's using hyperbole to demand your attention and to make a point. Don't miss the point. It should be obvious, actually, that Jesus isn't prescribing literal mutilation. And for one, none of his original disciples ever took this literally and did this. Should tell you something. Two, the Old Testament actually forbids literal mutilation like this. And given the fact that, like the whole point here, Christ is arguing that sin comes from your heart. So cutting off an eye or a hand, like it's not going to do anything. It's not going to solve anything. You, you can get rid of your right hand or eye because they're leading you into sin, but you still have your left hand, your left eye. Like they're going to do the same thing eventually. You only have two swings at this sin thing. And then you're out of eyes, you're out of hands. Like, what are you going to do then? You still are going to be a sinner. You have your heart. It seems like a rather limited solution. But there's even an interpretive clue in the text that is clear enough. Did you notice that Christ didn't just say, cut out your eye. He said, cut it out. And what? Throw it from you. Don't just cut off your hand. Cut off and then throw it from you. Why would you need to do that? What's, what's the point of that? I'm pretty sure if you cut out your eye, whether it's close to you or far away, it can't see. It doesn't work. You've already cut it off. What does throwing it far away from you have to do with anything? It has to do with the fact that he's not talking about amputating literal body parts. He's talking about amputating sources of sin in your life. He must be far removed from anything that would stumble you in life. That's that's a simple, straightforward point. Sin does reside in your heart. Sources of stumbling or temptation will draw it out from you. So get rid of those sources of stumbling or temptation. Lest you be thrown far away from God. If you don't do this, you're the one that's going to be thrown far away. And that's what hell is. But you need to cut these sources off. Christ is using repulsive imagery to show how repulsive sin and its consequences are. He's saying, in effect, that if temptation is coming through your eye, you should act as if you have no eye, meaning don't look at that thing. If temptation is coming through your hand, you should act as if you have no hand, meaning don't don't do that thing. Have nothing to do with anything that provides temptation. And to seal the deal here, Jesus uses this whole analogy elsewhere. I mean, he's an itinerant preacher. He's using the same material often. And later in Matthew 18, 7 through 9, he uses the same illustration. This time he adds the foot to the eye and to the hand. Your right foot's got to go as well. But there he explicitly connects the eye, hand, and foot to enticements to do wrong. To sources of stumbling, sexual or otherwise, just anything. Anything that entices you to sin. That's what he's talking about. That's what needs uh, to be removed. You must take drastic action to get rid of anything that would tempt you to sin. Look, Christ is a master teacher. He's giving a powerful sermon. It's designed to grab attention, make a point. Only those with ears to hear will get it, though. He doesn't stop this train to explain anything. He just keeps going, laying down truth claim after truth claim. He doesn't stop. 
But this is why we stop. This is why we're going verse by verse slowly that we can take time to study, discern, understand, and apply what Christ has said in this sermon. And that's what we're doing here. We've learned so far overall that that given Christ's own standard of righteousness, salvation is still impossible. Who meets this standard? Yeah, you've never maybe committed murder or adultery, but who is without anger or lust? Can't even go through a week without these heart sins surfacing in your life or, or a day. If you take Christ's words here to be a path to salvation, you're missing the point. We've already clarified that the path of of saving yourself by your works, your deeds of obedience, that's a dead-end path. That's a path the scribes and Pharisees were on, a path of self-righteousness. That path leads to judgment and perdition. You're meant, though, to understand that the problem of sin, it's deeper than you thought. It's inside of you. It's in your nature, your heart. That's the problem. That's why you, you can never obey enough. You can't be good enough. You don't have enough eyes and hands to cut off. And even if you did, you'd still be a sinner. You know, in the the later early church, how many monks retreated to a desert monastery over this verse, vowing to never even physically see a woman again, that they might not lust. But in many of the writings, they confessed they still lusted because they had an imagination. They couldn't escape their heart. You can't escape this. What you really need is, is surgery in your heart. Just like God told his people in the Old Testament, circumcise your hearts. Don't cut off your eye and and hand, cut off your heart. Just, Just, you know, give yourself a new heart. Now, obviously we can't do that. God himself clarified even back then that he would do this for us. Deuteronomy 36 says, moreover, the Lord, your God, God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. It's always been the case that God promises to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But to receive this, you must come to the end of the path of self-reliance. That happens to be the beginning of Christ's path, his way. It's a very narrow way, but that's where it begins. But then by faith in him alone, you can be saved. Because this Jesus happened to die and atone for murderers and adulterers in heart like you and I. He even died for literal murders, murderers and adulterers. You do realize that, that the archetype of the Messiah in the Old Testament was King David. King David was a literal murderer and adulterer. But how could he be justified? Not by anything he did. Not because he was inherently better or more righteous. Nothing he deserved. It was just God's grace working through David's genuine repentant faith. And you too, likewise, can be made right with God by that same complete trust and dependence, not in yourself, in his son alone for all you've done, physical, spiritual deeds, heart, whatever you've done, you can be made righteous, but this is the only way. And after you do that, though, after you go to this Christ, as we said last week, just keep in mind, he sends you back here. He sends you back and he says, now live like this. Remember that righteous standard you couldn't keep? Well, now you can. You can keep it. I've given you righteousness. Now just live it out. Let that come out of your new heart. Let those new righteous desires I've put in you come out. So you obey. 
And so here we are. We're justified. We're made new. We know that, that some oldness remains until we're glorified. We have the, the sinful flesh. So these desires still remain. This is when the battle begins. The real battle begins. And so what Jesus is telling us to do in these two verses, it's really not about mutilation. It's about mortification. It's no different than what the Apostle Paul told us in Romans eight thirteen. He says, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's Romans eight thirteen. If that phrase, putting to death the deeds of the body, that, that is the definition of mortification, to kill, to kill the flesh. That subject is, is way bigger than we can get into right now, but let's just focus on the part Jesus focuses on, which is making no provision for the flesh in accordance with its lusts. You know, one key aspect of this thing we call mortification is fleeing temptation. Sometimes you can't do that so to speak. Sometimes you can't escape temptation. You have to face it head on. There you can still overcome by being filled with the spirit, wielding the word of God and cutting down the lies of sin. But scripture also guides us to just, you know, if you can stay out of the known path of sin. Listen to Romans 13, 12 through 14, a key passage here. Romans 13, 12 through 14. Paul says, the night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, make no provision for the flesh in accordance with with its lusts. I mean, even for these very first Christians that the temptation to all these sins, including lust was real. It was strong. They had to wage war and and make sure they were not making any provision for their flesh and its lusts. And I think we can say today that temptation, it sure feels a million times stronger. I trust I don't have to convince you. We live in a sex crazed culture. And it has totally flipped morality on its head. It used to be that before the sexual revolution of the 60s, if you were promiscuous, you had to keep it a secret for fear of shame and ridicule. Today, if you're chaste, if you're a virgin, you have to keep it secret for fear of shame and ridicule. Now, every dimension of our culture has been sexualized. This is most prevalent in all forms of media because we all know sex sells. And so where can we go and and not be bombarded with sexual images? What store, what mall, what TV channel, what website, what app? And look, then, of course, we have the Internet, which resides in our pocket via cell phones. And it's, it's like a literal Pandora's box of temptation, sensuality, and, of course, pornography. This is one aspect of modern society where I think we can all literally say it has never been this bad. Never has any generation had such access to sensual images. Do you think that's making our culture better or worse? You realize you're carrying around a a huge potential source of temptation in your pocket. And so how can the Christian wanting to keep his or her way pure navigate life in such a culture? On the positive side, you have to be full of Christ. 
Your life has to be saturated with Christ. Your mind has to be stuffed full of the word of Christ so that you're full. There's no room left for the enticements of the world. And then on the negative side, because look, for you and me, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so on the, on the flip side, it helps to eliminate stumbling blocks. If you find that there are ready sources of temptation in your life, well, what does Christ say? It's time for radical amputation. Maybe it's time for you to cancel that HBO or Netflix subscription. Maybe it's time to delete Instagram or TikTok. Maybe you get rid of TV, the internet, God forbid, your cell phone altogether. Now, by no means do I say any of that as a way, by way of command. I mean, far be it from us to morph into the Pharisees and say, if you even watch TV or own a cell phone, you're sinning. We're not making any new laws here. But you personally are left to take seriously what Jesus says. If you find that something is enticing you to sin in your life, what is Christ telling you to do? Cut it off. Get rid of it. So you apply that yourself. I'll leave you just with one implication, though, for Christians today is that we need to be more and more willing to be cultural, culturally handicapped to remain pure. You need to be more willing to be culturally hand, handicapped to remain pure. And this is a far bigger challenge for those who are younger because they suffer from fear of missing out. But a new show comes out, everyone's watching it, it becomes a cultural sensation like in recent years, Game of Thrones, for example. Everyone's watching it. Everyone's talking about it. And so they, they don't want to be left out. They, they want to be accepted. They want to know what's going on in conversation. So, so they watch it. I mean, sure, it's filled with tons of nudity and sensuality, but, but they'll look away. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like telling kids to just go ahead and play dodgeball in the middle of a busy street. And when you see a car coming, just dodge those too. It's like you're, you're setting yourself up for a true disaster. You have to remember, though, this world is not our home. And especially as this culture, it just gets more and more wicked, more and more antithetical to everything our Lord was about. You're going to have to make a choice. Do you want to look more like them or him? Do you want to be accepted more by the world or by the Lord? And for you, you decide when is the time to, to cut some things off, to abstain some certain pleasures, certain activities, certain groups, certain aspects of the world to keep your eyes, your hands, and your heart pure. And look, we don't do this with an air of smugness or arrogance toward the unbeliever. No, we're just seeking purity because we've, we know. Many of us, we've tasted and seen the destructiveness and deceitfulness of sin, including sexual sin. But we also know it's only by grace that we've escaped We've been forgiven and cleansed and made pure. We have found the way to true life. That, that's why we're doing this. There's some here who are physical adulterers. All of us here are spiritual adulterers. We're all guilty. But we all serve a Savior who died for people like us. And to forgive all manner of sin. It is just like that woman caught in adultery in John 8. According to God's law in the Old Testament, she was deserving of death. But she got one of the first tastes of the Savior's grace. This is a grace which cleanses, transforms, and then brings us near. We're not thrown out. We're brought 
near, close, even into the very presence of God. We need to thank God for this grace. And don't forget, though, after that encounter, Christ told her, go and sin no more. And she would be an adulterer no more. And may it be true for us as well. Having been redeemed, may we be convicted and empowered to just pursue purity from the inside out and show others the way, the truth, and the life in Christ. Let me just finish by reading for you 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It's a precious passage. You'll see why. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But he says in verse 11, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's give him thanks for his amazing grace. Our God in heaven, we do that now together as one body. We, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your law, which, which points us the way, which shows what is right, what is true, what is worthy. Your law is good. We confess that. Your standard is perfect, and it was, you gave it to us because you know what is best for us. You know the hurt and destruction that awaits outside your gates. We thank you for your, your good law. Yet in our sin, we've all run outside the gates. We've all pursued a course of our lusts that have taken us far and wide, far away from you. And I, I trust and hope we've all been humbled by the pain it brings, the, the suffering sin brings. I hope we've tasted and seen, but also tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You're also God of grace. In addition to law, you, you give grace. You promise grace. It's the only way we can be saved. If there's any here this morning, that needed their eyes opened. I pray you do that work by your sovereign grace to open their eyes, to, to give them a new heart, cause them to call out to this Christ by faith, to be cleansed, to be made new. Because you give greater grace, Lord. You, you even change our desires. What we thought once was hopeless and impossible, you make doable by your spirit. Transform all of us, continually renew, renew all of us to be pure in heart exceedingly. The flesh remains, these desires remain, but may we put them to death by the Spirit. Now, work in us, uh, be gracious with us. We still fall short, but may we just leave thanking you. We serve a God of grace. For our lives, for the lives of the, those around us, may we share this good news. In Christ's name we pray, amen.